It was a close call. I, I almost didn't make it. I arrived late the night before at the smaller airport in Rome, a little bit after 11 o'clock, and got to the hotel shortly before midnight, and then said to the driver, okay, so I've got a mass tomorrow that can celebrate at 8.15 at St. Peter's. What time do we need to leave? And he said, 8.15? I thought, I thought we were going to meet at 10 o'clock. He said, well... They don't allow private masses as they used to at St. Peter's, so I had to find an English mass that I could join in. And the only one they said was taking place was at 8.15. He said, okay, then we need to leave at 7 o'clock to get there in time. I said, all right. A little while later, I get a text from him and said, how about (laughs) 7.10? It's going to be a short night, quick turnaround. So we left, but we really left uh, too, too late because it put a crunch on us. He dropped me off on the south side of the piazza. And so I quickly made my way in that direction. On the south side of St. Peter's is an entrance that allows you to go into the sacristy, get vested, and then go into Mass. And all that stood between me and success were two little Swiss guards. (laughs) And so I walked up to him, and began to explain to one of them the urgency that I have mass at 8.15. And as I was explaining, I remembered the trick that had been taught to us years ago when I was in school and I knew my mistake. Because when you go to those Swiss guards, they salute priests as a sign of respect. And the trick is that you salute them and act like you know what you're doing, that you're on official business, and then you just keep going, and I didn't do that, so he said, you'll have to go through security, and I thought, oh man, all the way across the piazza, and there's a line for me, I'm never going to make it in time, so I pushed back just a little bit with the Swiss guard, I said, this is really important, I'm going to be late, and well, he pushed back with me just a little bit, and I heard this interior voice say, I think you can take him. (laughs) And then I heard another voice say, yes, but there are two of them. (laughs) So fortunately, another security place opened up that was close by. And by the time we got to the sacristy, the priest was still vesting. He was running late as well. He was from Ireland. They were celebrating the 100th anniversary of their school. And so I made it just in time. The Swiss guards have to be among the most recognizable people in the world, don't you think? With their uniforms, their striped uniforms of red, yellow, and blue. Right, they're Renaissance-inspired. You never mistake them as being taken away from Macy's, you know. They stand out. They have distinguishing characteristics. They're clearly set aside for a specific purpose. Especially when they're carrying a halberd, you know, a long staff, you know, with an axe head on one side <laughs> and a spike and then a hook, just in case you're riding by on your horse and they need to pull you off your high horse. The uniforms could be different, but without distinctive traits, their purpose as guards would be compromised, diminished. They're not secret service, they're guards. The dietary laws of the Jews could have been different, 
but they needed to be distinct from the surrounding society as they were to be light in the world. They were to be like pointers or signposts, directing people to God. He's the one God, the creator of all. From him comes a just way of living so that we can live in peace. To relinquish the food laws would have been to relinquish their identity, their purpose, their mission, and ultimately their God. Their task was to be witnesses to that which has greater priority than their own life. Thus we hear the faithful brothers and mother in that intense first reading. Thus traditionally have those vocations with that distinguishing characteristic of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God been held in high esteem. Those, Jesus said, who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die. Marriage and procreation, the survival of the species, apparently go hand in hand with one another and with life on this earth prior to the resurrection. Post-resurrection, there is no marriage because there is no death. Celibate vocations bring that future hope of the resurrection into the present. They are unique witnesses to the resurrection by their distinctive way of life. Of course, that hope shines through more brilliantly to the degree the person is conformed to the resurrected Lord Jesus. That's what impressed me most about John Paul II. That's what impressed me most on my pilgrimage. I mean, there were extraordinary buildings, churches, sure, and others. The food was delicious, so was the coffee. But it was his goodness that stood out. I mean, there's a difference in a saint. He's light all the way through. He was given extraordinary gifts, intellectual gifts, a wonderful personality. But I felt very small as I walked where he walked and saw the photographs of his early life and the descriptions of how he lived, I thought, what am I doing with my life? A journalist who is not sympathetic to the Catholic Church at the time of the Pope's election, after reading a little bit of the Pope, he said, the Pope, is your Pope, is not from Poland. He's a Pope from Galilee. It's a great statement. In a different way, the value of holiness of being an authentic witness to the resurrection or follower of Jesus was evident in, vis in visiting Rome after I had been in Poland. I mean, both places had extraordinary churches. Right? Extraordinary churches. But in Poland, I mean, the faith was alive. Churches weren't just places where tourists visited and took pictures. They were places where people gathered and prayed. And they had people that would keep you in order if you did not. This is what we do here. Devotional life was clear. In fact, their custom, which is still present, is when a priest walks by, that they would say, I won't say it in Polish and butcher their language, but God be praised. So I'd be walking along, a sister, a nun, would be there, she'd say, God be praised. But lay people as well, God be praised. And in Italy, I rarely heard Padre. 
and even like religious goods stores, it was my first name. And then walking around, kind of with the pastor's eye, however long I've been pastor, 13 years or so, you know, you begin to look at buildings like, okay, what needs attention? You know, what needs some repair, right? What's falling down? And in Rome, I mean, there are churches everywhere, but I, I didn't notice scaffolding. But beyond that, I just thought, oh, my gosh, look at all the work that needs to be done. How is this possible when on the inside, so few people go to Mass? I met a priest friend there who works in the seminary. I think it's like six years or so, a six-year plan. He said for the Roman seminary, there are 50 seminarians. And not all of them are from Rome. For the entire diocese of Rome. You know, our mission here is not firstly about building buildings. You can have have extraordinary buildings that crumble if on the inside is not firm and kept up and alive. Our mission is firstly about Jesus and being authentic witnesses to him. And we are so blessed to have John Paul II as our patron. I mean, just think, who else around here has a patron that's a contemporary? I mean, for most of us, he's in our living memory. I mean, that last video that I shared with you on YouTube, that footage that I included was footage that I took as a student over there of John Paul II. He's in living memory. I mean, there are wonderful places around, Prince of Peace, Ascension, St. Michael's, and others, but how do you walk in the footsteps of St. Michael? But for us... I mean, here's someone who faced similar things that we, that we face. Atheism, hostility to religion, the fragmentation of society, which for us comes in this individualism and being on our devices. I mean, I was reading a, a retreat that he gave to college students in which he talked about the rebellion that's present by teens in the family and why this is the case and why it shouldn't be the case. We're blessed with such a patron. You know, based off of the YouTube videos of my pilgrimage and Facebook posts, I mean, there appears to be a lot of interest in the person of John Paul II, Carol Votiwa. So you know, I'm wondering you know, about forming you know, maybe some small groups for those who are interested, that we'd meet in homes, read a little bit about John Paul II's life, discuss it, talk about yeah, my pilgrimage in the places and maybe talk about making one now as a parish. Pray a little bit together and spend time in one another's company, not a big commitment, maybe meet once a month, maybe for an hour and a half or so. We need some of you who'd be willing to open your homes to maybe five to ten couples. You don't have to worry about dinner or picking up, and maybe a snack, that would be fine. But I'll send something out. We've been entrusted with something quite extraordinary. Everywhere I went and had a chance to visit with people, and they asked me, you know, why are you here? Where are you from? When I explained that I was pastor of a new parish, they were amazed across the board. The Irish priest at the Mass of St. Peter's introduced me and explained that. And you could see on the, the faces of the people there, just astonishment. 
you know, from Ireland where the church is in free fall, to this man that I met in the coffee shop from Lithuania. You know, I explained to him what I was doing, and then I left, and he comes out afterwards after he got his coffee and said, hey, what was that YouTube channel? I can't believe this. I mean, there's amazement, I would say, from the outside. That would be something different from the inside. I mean, for those of you who have been here five or six years, there ex- was excitement, amazement, especially at the beginning, and then, oh, it's tough going, pandemic and such. I was reminded of St. John Henry Newman, who said, faith by opposition doth grow. Faith by opposition doth grow. It's clear in Poland. They had to fight for freedom of religion. And you value that. So I recently recounted our history to the Archbishop. I tried to contextualize what I was going to ask him just by, you know, retracing our history. And as I did that, I thought, wow, there's been a lot that's gone on here in a few short years. Pandemic and such. When I got here, one of the staff members was on their way out described these last years as resulting in PTSD for him. It's a lot. So I recounted our history as background for requesting permission from him to construct first whichever building project we see as the most viable, the most compelling, one that we feel called to build. I said, Bishop, I, I don't know for sure that people are anxious to build a parish hall. Maybe they are. But what I would like is permission for us to build whatever we believe will be the most viable option, one that we believe should be built built first. And as would have it, on pilgrimage, it received a positive response. Yeah, okay, explore that. Whatever you decide, you can build. But I also recounted the history to the archbishop. You know, because of the extraordinary possibility I mentioned when giving the annual financial report a few weeks ago. I mean, he also gave a positive response to this possibility, which I still can't disclose. Sorry about that. But I should have information soon, perhaps even this week. We'll see. In the meantime, maybe you could pray for this possibility every day. Maybe you could consider joining others to learn about a great patron and discuss future possibilities in those groups, maybe building projects, maybe a parish pilgrimage, all the while redoubling your efforts to be unique witnesses to Jesus' resurrection and the vocation to which God has called you. He has chosen you to be light, to be signposts, pointers to what is of greatest value.